Welcome to Piano Rhapsody, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow the musical journey of an amateur piano player who's striving to play advanced level works one day, specifically Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which is where the podcast gets its name. Every week, we break down one of the pieces that I encounter along the road to this goal, ranging from the 18th century all the way up to modern day. We'll explore the history surrounding the work, examine the music within, and hopefully we all walk away a little more informed and appreciative of classical music. This is episode 22.3, the third episode of a series where we are celebrating the life and work of one of the titans of the classical period, Joseph Haydn. During the last two weeks, we've explored the first two movements of one of his piano sonatas in F major. And today, we're going to round things out with the third movement, titled Presto. But before we reach the musical climax of the sonata, let's pick up right where we left off with Haydn, financially secure by the royal patronage of the Esterhazy princes. Haydn's fame was on the rise, and it spread throughout Europe. He received commissions and treasures, including a diamond ring and a portrait of Prince Henry of Prussia. The foreign elites from France, Italy, and England all tried to convince Haydn to visit, but he was devoted to his employer and declined these lavish invitations. But his cozy employment would not last forever. When the head of the household, Prince Nicholas Esterhazy, passed away, his son assumed the duties of the royal house, and he didn't exactly hold music in such a high regard. So Haydn retired from his position, but he left amicably with the generous pension. And now that his schedule had opened up for the first time in the successful portion of his career, Haydn took a residency in London in the year 1791, and he performed a series of 12 concerts, all of which were huge financial successes. Haydn loved London just as much as the people loved him. He stayed there for 18 months, enjoying the company of many English lords and ladies, who showered him with unparalleled attention, enough to even cause jealousy with some of the local English composers. After his successful stint in England, Haydn's next stop was back home to Vienna, and here is where he first met a young Beethoven, and he began a trying role as his teacher. We talked about the details of this dynamic duo two episodes ago, so check that out if you missed that part of Haydn's story. It was around this time that Haydn learned that the non-music-loving heir to the Esterhazy house had passed away, and the new successor desired Haydn to re-establish the orchestra that he retired from. Haydn was delighted to hear this news, and he agreed to resume his old position with the Esterhazys, but part-time. He had a happy period during these next few years, despite his unhappy marriage, and this was a very productive compositional period. This was the time where Haydn wrote one of his most famous works, the Oratorio de Creation. Now, an oratorio is basically an opera, if you took out all the acting, but left in the music. The creation is the musical interpretation of the first chapter of Genesis, where God creates the world. Here's the moment where God says, 
Let there be light. But even the good times have to come to an end. In 1805 and 1806, Haydn lost two of his brothers, which was a heavy blow to the aging composer. His health began to decline. He experienced symptoms like lethargy, dizziness, and painful leg swelling, making composition frustratingly difficult. His inability to compose plagued him. He described it as... I must have something to do. Usually musical ideas are pursuing me to the point of torture. I cannot escape them. They stand like walls before me. Then, on May 31st, 1809, at the age of 77, Joseph Haydn fell back in his chair and passed away, ending his storied musical career. And here's where things get a little weird and morbid. Haydn was buried in a local Viennese cemetery, but Prince Nicholas Esterhazy II ordered that his remains be interred and moved to the church on their estate. When Haydn's body was exhumed, its head was missing. And who might be interested in Haydn's head, you might be asking? Well, a couple local phrenologists, that's who. Phrenology was a field of study that tried to associate mental capabilities with physical brain and skull anatomy. So you could probably imagine how the head of a musical genius would interest these people. Two of these so-called phrenologists actually bribed Haydn's gravedigger to deliver his head to them. According to the historical account, due to hot weather, the head had decomposed considerably causing the gravedigger to throw up as he delivered it in a carriage to the hospital for dissection. The phrenologists prepared and analyzed the brain, one of them keeping Haydn's skull in a box on display at his home. Prince Esterhazy was furious that Haydn's body was defiled in such a way, and he demanded that the phrenologists return the head to its rightful body. They ended up giving Prince Esterhazy a skull, to acquiesce his demand. But it wasn't Haydn's skull. Haydn's true skull was passed down from person to person over several generations, until the year 1954, when the Esterhazy descendant built a marble tomb for Haydn, so his body could finally be reunited with its head. And after a 145-year separation, the composer's true skull was buried alongside his body. Along with that extra skull. You know what they say, two heads are better than one. <laughs> but anyway, it didn't take two heads for Haydn to write many brilliant pieces throughout his life. One of those being the piano sonata in F major that we've been talking about throughout this series. It's a three-movement work, 
The first, a movement in sonata form. The second, a more expressive piece in F minor, marked adagio. And today, we're going to discuss the third and final movement, a rousing finale in F major, marked presto, or quick. This movement, similar to movement number one, is also in sonata form. But as you might expect from the name presto, it moves through its stages a little more rapidly. We begin with the exposition, where the movement introduces two themes in different keys. Theme A is a bouncy melody in the tonic key of F major. The second theme is actually quite similar to the first, but staying true to sonata form, it's differentiated by a different key. In this movement, Haydn chooses to set the second theme in the dominant, or the fifth. So that takes us from F major to C major. Now that we've established our two themes, next we move on to the development. We know we've arrived at the development when the movement takes a turn to a minor sound, and it starts to become a little more technically demanding. This section is the composer's playground, and although its stay is fairly brief, Haydn manages to have some fun here. And finally, we pivot back from a mostly minor sound in the development to the familiar sound of the first theme, returning in the recapitulation. And the second theme also returns for a final time. But this time, we take it from the dominant C major back into the tonic key of F major, bringing the sound home to its rightful conclusion as it fades away lightly like bubbles in the air. This is the third and final movement marked presto from Haydn's Sonata in F Major, number 23 from the Hoboken Catalog.
And that concludes our chapter on Father Haydn. The music is pretty far removed from modern music, but I think it's interesting to explore the forms of this era and how they've impacted the music that will follow. Classical era music is also a lot easier to digest than dense Baroque music, so it's quite a bit lighter on the ears. As for our classical composer checklist, we've done Mozart, and now Haydn, so we still have a Beethoven sonata in store for the future. But for the next series, let's do something different. In two weeks, I'm going to make good on that promise I made at the end of 2022, and let's finally take that trip to Paris to get lost in some dreamy Impressionist pieces. Hang on to your heads until then. You can find the standalone recording of the piece we discussed today directly in the podcast feed. Check out Piano Rhapsody on SoundCloud for all the tracks heard on this podcast and more. You can find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and consider rating or reviewing. It's the easiest way to never miss a new episode, and it helps the podcast gain more visibility. Thanks, as always, for your time and your ears. And remember, the piano keys are black and white, but they sound like a million colors in your mind.